Welcome to the podcast that helps you build wealth and thrive in a world of out of control central banks and big governments. This is the Rebel Capitalist Show. Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. Super excited to dive into your questions this Sunday evening. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to check out rebelcapitalistlive.com. I just spoke with my good buddy, Peter Schiff. This was last week, uh, something like that. And he confirmed for this Rebel Capitalist Live event, this next one. Let's see if I can go and show you a list of speakers. Rebel Capitalist Store. No, that's for merch. Rebel Capitalist Live. Here we go. So last week we added my good buddy Peter Schiff right here. And we also added Brent Johnson because I think it's going to be fun for Peter. He might do a debate with his oldest son, Spencer, on Bitcoin. That's uh, we're, we're trying to get Spencer to agree to it. So I told Spencer that he can be on the same team as Lynn Alden. So it'd be Lynn Alden and Spencer Schiff against Peter Schiff, Bitcoin versus gold. <laughs> That'd be fun. And then we might have Brent Johnson do a dollar debate with Peter. Uh, all three of us are, are good buddies. So that's always a, a heated debate, but respectful. And at the end, just a ton of fun. And uh, obviously, we got just incredible lineup of speakers. Mike Maloney, Lynn, like I said, Barnes, Kenny McElroy, Chris McIntosh, MC Robert Helms, Hartman, Simon Black, and uh, Brent Johnson up there. We're going to get a few more that are going to absolutely blow your mind. So if you haven't got your tickets, the Rebel Capitalist Live, got to do that ASAP. Because as we get closer to the event, May 12th through the 14th, prices go up. So you definitely want to get your tickets ASAP. All right, let's shoot into your questions, see what we got for this evening. Question, if there hadn't been a pandemic and the economy was doing well, well, I don't know that the economy would be doing well if there wasn't a pandemic, because let's go back to the repo spike in September of 2019. That was a canary in the coal mine, if you will. So I, I, I don't know. In fact, I think there's a good argument that we would have it we would have had a steeper recession without the surveys sickness because there wouldn't have been that CARES Act 2.0, the 5 billion, excuse me, 5 trillion in deficit spending. So I think there's an argument both ways, but I do agree that long-term, the economics of the surveys sickness will do, or the government spending that went with the surveys sickness, the lockdowns, the economic disruptions, the supply chain is getting completely shredded. That The long-term effects of that will definitely, definitely be negative. We will be feeling that for a long, long time. So, okay, let's get back to your question. If there hadn't been a pandemic and the economy is still doing well, and yet the central banks still bought as much gold as they did in 2022, would that still be a red flag? I don't know that the central banks buying gold in 2022 is a, a red flag for the economy. I mean, who knows why they're doing it? My, my base case is that they just see Russia and they see the sanctions on all their dollar assets and they say, yeah, no, homie, don't play that because it might be Russia today, but it could be me tomorrow. So treasuries, woo, 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 woo. no more. <laughs> Gold, bring it on. I need some sort of asset that has no counterparty risk. Now, I did listen to Jim Rickards the other day on Adam Taggart's podcast which I strongly suggest called Wealthy on. And Rickards was saying that the central banks could be selling a lot of their treasuries, not because they don't want the treasuries, but more so they need the dollars. I think there's a good argument for that. But my main point is I think 
they're probably buying gold just because they don't want any counterparty risk because they saw what the West did to Russia as far as those dollar assets. So I don't know that's much of a red flag for the economy. Would you consider partnering with someone like Barnes for setting up a bank that caters to rebel cap? No, no, no. I mean, look at what they did to Schiff. I mean, talk about just a, what do you even call that? I mean, a setup? Do you, what do you, do you call that? I mean, highway robbery? Do you call that? I, I mean, I don't know. But if you don't know what happened, you know, Schiff had a bank in Puerto Rico and it was full reserve, no problems with it. And then they, the media threw him under the bus in Australia. They're claiming that he had these clients that were trying to evade taxes and it just what the media does. They're just sensationalizing. And trying to create a story, just trying to really just uh, make Peter look bad just for ratings. That's bottom line. And so then the Puerto Rican government said, oh, oh, let's go after this Peter Schiff guy. So they basically told him that, oh, you need to increase your capital requirements or something like that. So he said, yeah, fine. No problem. Although uh, we don't have any issues because we're not even a fractional reserve bank. But then, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And basically they kept just creating these roadblocks. So he had to sell the bank, even though it was, they had plenty of capital. And then they blocked the sale. So then he basically had to just say, well, I guess it, it's going out of business. And it wasn't because he didn't have a good business. It's not because he did anything unethical. And in fact, I would argue his bank was far more ethical and far more safe than normal bank because they didn't even, it wasn't even fractional reserve for heaven's sakes. It was full reserve. But this is an example of, of when you're getting into that area where there's a lot of regulations and you got to deal with the government and you got to deal with FATCA or any of these government programs, this red tape, this, this uh, KYC, know your customer type thing. That's when the, the, even if you're squeaky, squeaky, squeaky clean, the, they can come after you and put you out of business. Boom. Just like that. So now the, the banking business is, is, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole right now. Although, to your point, there's probably a need for it, and there's probably demand. I just think that, unfortunately, the, the risks involved just don't make sense. Hey, George, when are you and Josh going to switch to trading view for charts? Uh, I mean, it's not that I always go to CNBC. I go to CNBC more for the news, and then they've got some charts that are just pretty straightforward. But you'll notice with the whiteboard videos, I use... Just whatever chart is best. I don't. I don't know if I. I'm sure I've used Trading View before. I don't have any one source for charts. If there is a bail-in situation to T-bills and Treasuries, take a haircut too. Mm, no, there is certain. There is certain optionality I'd like to keep without completely draining my bank accounts. I man, especially if you've got under 250, like under the FDIC limit, I, I would not be worried about a bail-in. There's. There's. It's not a zero probability. But as far as the list of priorities that I would worry about, that would be very, very low. Question, what happens to savings deposits, not money market CDs at commercial banks? If there's a U.S. debt default, nothing. Oh, I see. Because you're saying that the U.S. debt default would be deflationary, then that would cause some sort of systemic risk for the banks. Well, again, I think the, the probability of a U.S. debt default is in, incredibly low. I would hope that they would understand the ramifications there, that you're not just, that's not just a bad thing for the U.S. government, that that's potentially 
collapsing the entire global monetary system because the entire global monetary system, as most of you know from watching my videos, built around treasuries, specifically T-bills. So if all of a sudden those T-bills aren't money good or aren't worth 100 cents on the dollar, you then you effectively eliminate all the pristine collateral currently in the system. And I mean, I hate to say it this way because it sounds hyperbolic, but it, it's actually not if you understand the system. If they were to default on T-bills to where we go back to like a GFC type of thing, or back then it was a collateral issue with mortgage-backed securities, you took a, a pie chart, you had 100% of the collateral being used. You had T-bills and mortgage-backed securities. Almost overnight, you eliminated half that pie chart. That was really, really what set off the global financial crisis. And that's what differentiated just a real estate bust from a global financial crisis, was the addition of how that collateral impacted, or the lack thereof, impacted the euro dollar system and the global monetary system. So what you're talking about there is, and keep in mind, Back then, yes, T-bills were pristine collateral. Yes, mortgage-backed securities were also pristine collateral. But I, I would argue there were still a lot more T-bills there. It wasn't a 50-50 split. So now, if you want to look at the, that pie chart, almost 100% of it is going to be T-bills. When back then, it was, let's just say, 60-40, uh, right? 60% T-bills, 40% mortgage-backed securities. Now, it's probably... 95% T-bills. So my point is, if that were to happen, where all of a sudden, just like the mortgage-backed securities back in 2008, the market realizes that those are no longer worth 100 cents on the dollar, the very last thing I would be worried about is the money that I have in my, my savings account. And I know that sounds crazy, but I'm not joking. What, what you're talking about is it's it's literally Mad Max at that point. I mean, just just try to think that one through. Or the global monetary system, the global monetary system. That means the creation of dollars, liquidity, repo, the entire financial system, the entire plumbing implodes in a let's say a week period, a two week period. That's Armageddon. So now maybe I would. I, I, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit saying that I wouldn't be worried about my savings at all, but I'm not exaggerating by saying that would be very low on my, on the totem pole. <laughs> as far as the things I'd be worried about how to get food. I mean, I'd be worried about electricity and you say, oh, well you can use, you know, that's your savings. That's why you need safe. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. In that environment, I don't know that the banks work. I don't know that they function. So even if you had saving, I mean, so you got saving. I don't know if you could even spend the dollars. I don't know if anything would even, I'd have to think that through, but I could envision a scenario where even if your bank happens to survive and you have savings, I don't know that you could spend it because if all the other counterparty banks go bust and the system's down, how, how do you, how, how does that transaction even happen? In that case, you'd want green pieces of paper. You'd want silver, you'd want gold, you'd want Bitcoin, something like that. Some sort of purchasing power outside the system. And I think what you're talking about would be a perfect segue for the central bank, Federal Reserve, to come in and implement a central bank digital currency, which if you guys watched my whiteboard video on this, it's not really a central bank digital currency. It's simply just a central bank ledger system and software. And that is, that is a, a big, a very important distinction. So what would happen there, I think, is the Fed, instead of doing QE, on the asset side of the commercial bank's balance sheet, where they're just buying mortgage-backed securities or treasuries or something. Now they're all of a sudden taking, instead of taking assets off, they're taking liabilities off. So we go into potential Mad Max scenario 
everyone's freaking out. The banks are just closing. You know, they, they can't, they're, they're, nothing operates. And then the Fed comes in and says, okay, all those commercial deposit, those commercial bank deposit liabilities, which is what your savings account is, we'll go ahead and take that onto the Fed's balance sheet because the Fed can't go bust. And they do that to reinstill confidence in the system, which in their minds, that's what it's all about. So anyway, that's kind of a tangent, but I, I don't know that people realize they, you know, they kind of say that flippantly, if that's the right word, or they say that casually, probably a better way to say it, that, oh, what happens if they default on their debt as though that's Argentina defaulting on their debt as though that's just the, the as though that's just the people that hold those bonds just kind of getting stiffed or have to take a haircut. No, 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 no. <laughs> that, that ain't it. <laughs> that's the least of your problems is the, the holders of those bonds taking a haircut. It's, it's the implosion of the entire system. Now that, that said, if you do have a savings deposit or if you have savings that is under the FDIC limit, I'm sure the Fed would make good on that 100 cents on the dollar, but obviously your 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 new savings account would not be at Wells Fargo, it would be at the Fed. That would be FedCoin or whatever you want to call it. That would be the new interbank ledger system that I was referring to. So I, I think if you're concerned with this, might want to have some purchasing power outside the system. You might want to have some green pieces of paper, might want to have some silver, might want to have some gold. I want to have some Bitcoin. How tall am I? Six foot four. Should we be hedging at all for inflation at this point based upon the velocity uptick? Well, it's definitely a possibility. That's for sure. I just think that 1080-10 is, it's the best way I know of to hedge against whatever may happen because you're just getting paid. You're, you're getting paid. And if 80% of your portfolio pays you to own it, that that fixes a lot of problems, right? Even though there might be some inflation, and the purchasing power of your balance sheet goes down, you're still, you still got the P&L. You still got that income coming in to offset the rest. Or if the paper value of the assets you, go, you have goes down, you, you've got that cash flow coming in to offset it. It's just the best way I know to stupefy a portfolio. And then, of course, you got 10% gold, a little more. And on the other 10%, with the speculative side, you've got some things that I would argue could, could hedge against inflation. You know, uranium as an example, but then you'd want some things that I think that are, what's the right word, that are uh, uncorrelated to inflation, deflation. And I think uranium, although if we have some significant disinflation or deflation because you have a financial crisis, you could see a dip there, but I just think that would be a buying opportunity. So I'd look for maybe some of those, but yeah, I mean, in this type of environment, inflation is is definitely a possibility that you get another wave up. It's just not my base case. But I, you know, I'm not sophisticated enough to set up my portfolio really based on my base case. <laughs> Again, that, I just try to stupefy everything so even I can do it, and that's just getting paid. Why did you pick same hour as Super Bowl? I didn't even know the Super Bowl what was happening. I watch UFC and I used to watch the Super Bowl. I used to watch stuff like that. In fact, when I lived in Phoenix way back before I retired, I used to go to the Suns games like, geez, once every two weeks or so. I really enjoyed them. But as they became more woke and I, I just, I, I can't deal with that stuff. I don't know if it's just I'm getting old or what it is, but if I tune into a football game, I just want to watch a football game. Like I don't want to know what the player's opinion is on transgender kids. I don't care. I don't want to hear the announcers talking about George Floyd. 
or whatever the recent reason is to riot in the United States and have to take some sort of position on it. I just, just please shut up. Just please shut up. No, you're, a, you're, I was going to use profanity there, but you're, 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 you're an athlete for heaven's sakes. You're an athlete. Your job is football. What, why, why do you even have it? Why do you even assert your opinion on some sort of political issue? You're an athlete. Just shut up and play sports. And if you want to have some sort of opinion, great. Have an opinion, but do it after the game. <laughs> Same thing with the announcers. Just just shut up, play football, announce the damn game, and let me sit back and watch. That's all I ask for. So since nowadays that's pretty much impossible, I've just really lost interest. I, I have no desire to follow the NBA, to, fire, to follow NFL. You know, NHL is going down the same path. Now, all of a sudden, they've got to wear all the rainbow flags on their jerseys. And it's just like, come on. Do we really need to, does the NHL really need to make a statement that they support the gay community? I mean, is, is that really important? And by the way, is that going to move the needle? I mean, come on. Come on. You know, if you want to do something to move the needle, great. That's not it. In fact, I would argue that's counterproductive. Because when, when you've got some people that uh, would maybe be open to donating to a specific charity or, or doing something to get involved with their local community to improve the lot of those minority groups that are disadvantaged. If you keep beating them over the head with it, and if they want to sit down and watch a football game and they can't because you're jamming that garbage down their throat, you're going to turn them off. And they're going to be like, oh, no, just, ah, no, enough, 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 enough. It's like a, a freaking fire hose of wokeness. So what, what you're doing, is, it's counterproductive. And instead of having a group of people that, that you might be able to connect with and have them participate in the community to really make a difference, now what you're doing is you're just chasing people away from the movement because the, all they want to do is watch a football game and you're just ruining it for them. How likely is World War III to take place? And what is your timeline? Uh, maybe it happened, needs to happen to make it. Well, I mean, I don't know, man. Maybe it's not World War III that we should be worried about. Maybe it's a war against the aliens. <laughs> you want to talk about a black swan event? What if aliens show up? And, you know, the world just keeps getting crazier and crazier, doesn't it? Like, usually that would be a joke. But, I mean, today, maybe it's not. I mean, you got the government coming out and admitting they're shooting down unidentified flying objects. Well, what are they? Well, they're just... The, the, I, I read an article on uh, Friday where the head of the military or whoever's in charge of this said his best description of what it was, was an object. Oh, thanks. That, that really, wow. Okay. That really paints the picture. <laughs> I mean, what? Come on. And then they shoot down another one over Canada. I, I mean, I, I was fully expecting, I would shoot, I wasn't expecting but I actually checked my, the news this morning because I was like, you know, what's going to show up on the news? That they actually found a UFO? And I, I mean, it's, I don't even really believe in UFOs. I really haven't given it too much thought. It probably wouldn't be my base case, but I, I don't know. What, what, what is this? So obviously, most likely, it's something to do with China. So you would think that our biggest risk with World War III would be Russia. Now we've got China sending over all these UFOs. We'll assume it's China. Hopefully it's not Martians that we're going to have to fight like some sort of sci-fi movie with Will Smith. 
<laughs> but now, I mean, as crazy as the world is getting, I don't know. I, I wouldn't even attach a zero probability to it. Oh, so yeah. I mean, you've got to attach probabilities to it. Not only World War Three happening, but World War Three with Russia, World War Three with China, uh, maybe World War Three with aliens. I don't know. As far as the timeline, I, I couldn't answer that question at all. Is it inevitable? No. No, I don't think it's inevitable. I just think the way that they're going, unfortunately, the probability is is pretty high. I mean, I would argue we might even already be in a war. I mean, look at what we're doing. Is, is Ukraine and Russia not a proxy war? I mean, we're just giving them everything. They're, we're basically using the Ukrainians as our military just to fight Russia. So, and, and then I guess the whole world isn't involved with it, but the whole West is. All of Europe is giving them weapons. The U.S. is giving them billions and billions of dollars. The EU went over there with some stupid promo campaign where Ursula was handing out light bulbs, like LED bulbs, because they're trying to help the Ukrainians and at the same time save the environment. I mean, we're just we're just going from stupidity to insanity. But maybe this is just we it's already begun, and hopefully it won't accelerate. But I think the probability is pretty high. And how that plays out, I mean, I have no idea. There's just too many too many variables. I think the only thing you can do on that front is just have some flexibility with your life, if, if, if at all possible. Make sure you've got some purchasing power outside of the system, like we discussed earlier. Because one thing that would really probably throw a curveball to the banking account, to the banking system, and your savings account would be a nuclear bomb being dropped on the United States. That, that would cause a problem, obviously. So, and then I think maybe even more importantly, I would have some if at all possible, some flexibility in, in where I was physically. Like right now, as you guys know, I'm in Medellin, Colombia, and I love it here. But another big reason I'm here is because this is not in the line of fire as of right now for nuclear weapons. Sounds crazy that you have to factor that into your decision-making process. But unfortunately, that's the world we live in right now. I can't get him to reveal the venue of his conferences. So what I would greatly appreciate is people assuming that there is a logical, commonsensical reason for me doing something. And the reason I don't give the venue for Rebel Capitalist Live is because if I did, all these people would show up without tickets. They'd want to buy tickets at the venue. They do all, it would be a logistical nightmare. And what I would have to do is I would have to hire a lot more staff in order to handle that, we'd have to give bracelets. We'd have to take the, the, the names of people. We'd have to check you off the list. When you go into the main ballroom, we'd have to check to make sure you're wearing your bracelet or you've got your VIP thing. It, it's just, it, it's just logistically, it's too much. And it's far, it's a far better experience when what we do is when you buy a ticket, then we tell you where the venue is. And the venues are always nice, obviously. It's not like I'm going to have it at some dumpy airport hotel. So the venue's nice. Then you get the venue location. So I know that everyone or 99% of the people that show up are going to have tickets. And therefore, we really don't have to be, you know, uh, bracelet Nazis. Every single room that you go in to make sure that this is someone that paid and blah, blah, blah. No, we just have fun. It's a very relaxed environment. And we don't have to go through all that rigmarole. So believe it or not, there is a method to my madness. 
what what frustrates me is people that think I'm just doing that because I, I want to be a jerk or I want to make things difficult or <laughs> I mean, come on guys, give me a little bit of credit here. Hey guys, I want to remind you to get your tickets to Rebel Capitalist Live. This is the live conference I do twice per year with all of your favorite speakers from the Rebel Capitalist Show and experts in investing, commodities, real estate, freedom, and liberty. All of your favorite topics, all of your favorite speakers. The next Rebel Capitalist Live is going to be in Miami and tickets increase in price as we get closer to the event. So go to rebelcapitalistlive.com right now to get your tickets to the next Rebel Capitalist Live. It's the conference you cannot afford to miss. It'll help you increase your financial freedom and more importantly, your personal freedom. You'll get intel that you won't hear anywhere else. Past speakers have included icons in macroeconomics, investing, and personal freedom and liberty. People like Dr. Ron Paul, Robert Kiyosaki, Brent Johnson, Lynn Alden, Jeff Snyder, Richard Werner, Mark Moss, Lynette Zhang, and Robert Breedlove, just to name a few. So once again, go to Rebel Capitalist Live right now and get your tickets today. What is your knowledge on the surveillance drones that have been shot down? Today they are saying they've shot down one more, making that drone number four. I don't know. Are they drones? <laughs> Again, as of Friday, maybe things have changed. I know this is a quickly evolving topic, but as of Friday, the best description they could give was it's just a high-altitude object. Oh, okay. <laughs> so assuming that it's a surveillance drone, it's uh, it just go back to what I was saying before. I, I mean, is it China? Is it Russia? It's just one step closer. And I, I think you know if they're doing it, what would make sense to me is they're just testing the United States to see, okay, what do they do? How long does this take? And how do they respond? How does it get through the media? What's the message? What's the spin? What's the propaganda? I mean, I, I would just be it would be a data collecting uh, a data collecting procedure. For for me, if if I was putting my champ my China hat on, what specific investment have you recently bought, and what are you planning to buy soon? The most recent thing I've purchased is our our T bills, I believe six month and watch list is commodities, dividend paying commodity stocks, uranium. I'm very close to pulling the trigger. I'm trying to think what else here. I know there's a couple other things, but that I'm forgetting. But those are that's that's what my main focus is. Oh, Bitcoin. Definitely watching Bitcoin. Do you think buying state provincial, I think I'm pronouncing that right, bonds is safe if it gets the state province? I don't know. I mean, that's a, a Canada question and I'm not quite sure. I haven't done enough research to say if they're quote unquote safe. And unfortunately, you know, safe is a very subjective word. So I don't think I'd have a, a good answer for you. I mean, I could kind of look at that in terms of local state bonds here in the United in the United States and say, well, would I say those are quote unquote safe? <sighs> really depends on the state, right? I mean, Illinois, I know they're having a lot of problems. I mean, for me, I just, I don't know that I'd really be attracted by 
state or muni bonds when I, I guess they're there's something about tax free. I haven't really looked into them, but you can get, I don't know what the yield is, but my goodness, if you can get almost a 5% yield on a, like a one year or six month T-bill, I just, I prefer the T-bill. How does simply increasing money supply create inflation if that money isn't directly going into consumers' hands? Well, this is a great question. And it puts a spotlight on the fact just increasing the money supply is the first step in trying to determine whether or not you're going to have consumer price inflation. But it's by no means the only step. So as an example, let me see if I can shoot over to Twitter and do a quick screen share. I think this would really help answer this question a lot better with a, a visual. Just bear with me one moment, guys, please. This is a thread from my good friend, Lynn Alden. Let's shoot over there. And she says, after the dust settles from a major event, whether inflation was just caused by temporary supply shock or monetary debasement, is answered by one key test. Did aggregate prices go back down to their previous level? So what she shows is certain inflation spikes throughout the 1900s. And then she looks at World War I, she looks at World War II, and she points out the fact that prices never went down, back down to their previous levels. Therefore, uh, you would have to argue that the consumer price inflation wasn't, might not have been exclusively because of debasement, but that had to play a part because if it was simply just a supply chain issue. Then once that supply chain issue was fixed, if you started at a dollar, then that supply chain issue is going to increase the price of that good to, let's say, $2. But without an increase in the money supply, once that supply chain is fixed, that price is going to go back down to $1. So if the price doesn't go back to $1, if it stays at $2, then you know that had to be an increase, or most likely was an increase in the amount of currency units chasing goods and services. And obviously, you know, you would expect something very insightful like this from Lynn because she's quite literally a genius. But one question that I have, and, and, and one of the reasons I, I really try not to use the phrase monetary debasement is because it implies a one-to-one relationship between an increase in M2 and CPI. And to your point here, the person that asked this question, that isn't always true. So I responded to her tweet thread uh, with a question, and I'd love to get Lynn's feedback. Maybe I'll have her on live to kind of discuss this. But I said, the question is, was the new high watermark in the CPI a result of an increase of M2 or an increase in government spending? Because when we look at the examples she gave of World War I and World War II, it is true. M2 money supply saw a big spike, and then the prices did not go back down. So you can say, okay, that was monetary debasement. But I point out that if you look at, so the first spike that she was referring to is here, World War II. And hopefully I can expand this chart, excuse me, World War I. So that would have been right here. And then the next one was World War II. But I don't know that it was just a monetary phenomenon because that's when government spending as a percentage of GDP spiked, but then it never went back down to its high watermark either. So is the increase in CPI or quote unquote monetary debasement a result of an increase in the money supply or maybe more so 
a result of government spending as a percentage of GDP, making the overall economy less efficient. Therefore, you're creating fewer goods and services relative to that increase in M2. And that is playing a bigger role in the price increases that you're seeing, or at least the price is staying at that high watermark. So one of the examples that I gave is this time, and hopefully you guys can see my pointer, from 1870 to 1900, roughly, the uh, government spending as a percent of GDP, pretty consistent. Right here, let's call it, I don't know, 7 8%. And what's interesting is during this time frame, the increase in M2 money supply was 400%. 400. And what's really fascinating is, as most of you know, that we are under a strict gold standard during this time frame. And from 1990 to 2020, when we are on a fiat standard, so money printer go burr, M2 money supply increased by, you guessed it, 400%. The exact same. So I'm not saying that you know, we shouldn't have sound money, but I am saying it is interesting that during a 30-year period where we had strictly fiat, and the Fed and money printer go burr and all these things. Uh, and again, I stop it at 2020. If you include 2020 and 2021, obviously it goes up quite a bit. But uh, it is exactly the same as when we are on a strict gold standard. Now, getting back to my original point, you can see that this 30-year period did not have a huge spike in terms of government spending as a percentage of GDP, but we had M2 go up by 400%, and, D, and uh, the CPI was negative. 45%. See? So my point there is it's it's not just about M2 money supply. Or else during this time frame, we would have seen a corresponding spike and a new high-level watermark in the CPI. And we saw the exact opposite. Prices go down, not up. So I I, I obviously M2 is a big component of the CPI, but I don't know that it's as much of a component as the government spending. Why? Because it's not just an increase in the money supply that creates the consumer price inflation. It's when there's an increase in the money supply and you don't have a corresponding increase in the supply of stuff. So during this time frame, sure, money supply went way up, but the amount of stuff, the productivity went way up as well. Why? Because the, the increase in money supply was not a result of government spending. <laughs> it was a result of banks lending productively to the private sector. So my my getting back to your question, how does simply increasing money supply create inflation? It doesn't. It all depends why the money supply was increased. If the money supply was increased for consumption or if the money supply was increased as a result of the government spending it, so it's just making the economy worse and less efficient, then you're most likely going to have consumer price inflation. And it's going to go that high watermark, just like Lynn was pointing out correctly. But if that increase in money supply is without the government, it's just, and, and it's not with the government involvements in the banks either. So the government's, or excuse me, so those banks are actually keeping those loans on their balance sheet, which incentivizes them to lend money to individuals and entities that are going to be able to increase their productivity, therefore pay them back. So if you got this system where the banks are creating loans and just pawning them off on Fannie and Freddie, well, that, 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 creates a perverse incentive structure. So I think you guys get my point. It's all about why there's an increase in money supply. It's not just about an increase in money supply on its own.
My thoughts on Turkish Syrian Syrian earthquake. Well, obviously, from a humanitarian standpoint, it's it's horrific. From an investment standpoint, which I think is what you're asking, does it provide a, an opportunity to get in to a country? And when I mean get in, I mean buy assets, you know, buy stocks or something uh, of a country that long term probably has a lot of tailwind. If you look at the Belt and Road Initiative by the Chinese, Istanbul is just front and center. That that's that's crucial. So if you believe that the next 10, 20 years, the Chinese are going to be making a lot of headway with Belt and Road, you therefore should incorporate that into your view of Turkey and the, the, the and, and therefore that this unfortunate humanitarian disaster uh, could bring down the prices of stocks where they're a lot cheaper than they were before. Unfortunately, the guy that's in charge there, Erdogan, however you pronounce his name, is an idiot. And one of the things I, I learned from Jim Rogers is it's it's not just buying when something's cheap. It's not just buying a country when it's cheap. It, it's buying a country when it's cheap, when there or maybe crisis investing, if you want to call that. But there also needs to be a specific catalyst. You can't just, just buy when it's cheap. So Turkey might have gotten cheap as a result, but but you don't really have a strong catalyst because that knucklehead is still in charge. Now, they do have the next vote in Turkey soon. It's either in March or May, I can't remember which, where they could vote him out. And if he is ousted and you get someone in there that's more sane, then I then that would be probably front and center on my watch list, going back to that earlier question. Unfortunately, as an American, a citizen of the land of the free, you can't really invest in Turkey <laughs> because they won't take your money because of all those onerous regulations we were talking about with banks that, uh, that my good buddy Peter Schiff had to deal with, with his bank in Puerto Rico, the KYC, the FATCA, all these things. So when I went to Turkey and tried to set up a brokerage account, they said, sorry, we, we'd love to take your money, but we, we're, we really can't because there's so much red tape dealing with an American, it's just not profitable. So the only way we'll work with you is if you're an institutional account and you want to deposit like $100 million, then financially it makes sense for them. But if you're just someone that's going to deposit a hundred grand or a million bucks or 10 grand, unfortunately it just doesn't make sense for them. So the government, the United States government effectively has put a cage around where you, a quote unquote free citizen, can invest your money. That's just the reality of the situation. And the only way I know how to play Turkey, and there could be some other ways, but is through an ETF. But on, uh, who's the ETF run by? BlackRock. Woohoo! Great. So now you got to do business with BlackRock, <laughs> which, I mean, not exactly what I'd like to do. But uh, hopefully one of you guys can find a better way to play Turkey. But that's kind of how I'd, I'd think about it. And if you're not an American citizen, citizen then you have far, far, far more options there. How would a digital currency affect Forex? I don't know that it would. I'd strongly encourage you watching my last or second to last whiteboard video where I discussed a CBDC because you're not replacing a currency. It's not like the dollar is going away and you're replacing it with FedCoin. That's why I really don't like calling it a central bank digital currency because that's not the change. The change isn't the money. The money doesn't change. The only thing that changes is the ledger system and the point of sale software. All the banks do at the end of the day is just keep score. 
In fact, I think it would be much better for people to think of banks, not as banks, but as, as scorekeepers, just like the guy at the NBA game. Because then you get into the mindset where the bank's balance sheets are constrained, just like the scorekeeper at the NBA game isn't constrained by the NBA team getting to 105 points. If they score another basket, you can easily add another two points, take it from 105 to 107. There's nothing that's constraining him because all he is is a scorekeeper. Exact same thing with the banks. Exact same thing. So again, what does change? Well, you'd have a consolidation of the ledger network where those commercial bank deposit liabilities would, I think, go onto the Fed's balance sheet or the Fed's ledger. And uh, you'd just be using bank reserves, but it'd, it'd still be the same dollars. In fact, 99.9% of society wouldn't know the difference. In fact, I don't even know if you'd know the difference. That was a thought experiment that I proposed on the video was just how, how do you know they're not using a central bank digital currency right now? Would you know? So my point is if, if it's not changing a currency, if it's just changing a ledger system, then ask yourself, how would that change Forex? And the answer is it probably wouldn't. Now there's things that the Fed could do once they change that ledger system, increasing velocity, doing all you know these economic distortions, which could uh, decrease the value of the dollar or increase the value or who knows what the central planners will do. And that could impact FX. But just simply moving to that new system, I, I don't think that that really does anything. Would you buy an investment property generating positive cash flow in a linear market in Canada? Five-year fixed. No, no. I mean, again, but, you know, positive cash flow, what does that mean? Is that a dollar? Is that a thousand? You know, what's your RV ratio? If it was just an incredible RV ratio, I might consider it. But being that it's in Canada, I, I doubt that it is. And the, the fact that you can only take out a five-year fix. Now, I, let me take that back. Because if there was a clause on the contract where they could, where there was a maximum limit to what it would adjust to, and then you were still significantly cash flow positive based on your cost basis, then I might consider it. But I don't even know if that's a thing. The reason I'm saying that is because when I had a line of credit against my rental properties in the United States in Kansas City, the bank I dealt with, the local community bank, that was one of the things I was very concerned with. And because as you guys know, a line of credit, I mean, that's adjusting literally every month. So I, I asked my, my buddy, who was the, the vice president of commercial lending there, you know, how that would work. And he pointed out a clause in the specific contract where they could only adjust so high. I think that my rate was like I don't know, 5% or higher than that. But anyway, let's just say it was 5%. And the maximum they could adjust to was I think like 8.5. So my downside was capped and I was okay with that. So if you get like a, like let's say a 30-year mortgage, but the first five years are fixed, but throughout the entirety of that 30-year mortgage, they could never exceed, let's say, 8%, and you're getting a 5%. And even if it goes up to 8%, the investment still makes a ton of sense as far as the cash flow, then I might consider it. But there are a lot of prerequisites there. <laughs> and, and then even, it, even then, it would depend on your personal situation. Question regarding Euro dollar, can the Bank of Italy give a loan to a corporate business in Germany? No, no. So if you're referring to a central bank, no, the central bank can't do that. The central bank cannot create dollars. The, I would argue almost the Fed really can't create dollars directly, but that's a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, so no, they, they can't. Uh, they can utilize swap lines with the Fed and whatnot. But really when you're talking about the Euro dollar system, those are commercial banks, a network of commercial banks. 
Brazil, I'm a little uh, I'm a little hesitant with Brazil because the guy they've got in charge there is a knucklehead too. So that would be another one of those things that would fall under the it might be cheap, but uh, there's no catalyst that would give it a, a, a tailwind. If anything, there's a catalyst that would give it a headwind. So I'm not saying it's something you shouldn't explore. I'm just saying it's something that, that personally I wouldn't uh, be interested in as of right now unless something changed there. All right, guys, let's do some shout outs here. If you weren't with us at the beginning of the video, I'd strongly encourage everyone to go check out rebelcapitalistlive.com. Like I said, we just included or added my buddy Peter Schiff to the speakers. And we've got Brent Johnson coming as well. I just don't have his picture up. I got Simon Black, Hartman, Chris McIntosh, Kenny McElroy, Robert Barnes, Lynn Alden, Mike Maloney. And there's going to be a few other incredible speakers. So if you haven't got your tickets, make sure you do so ASAP at rebelcapitalistlive.com. All right, let's do some shout outs. Who do we got? We got Market Mania. I know my good buddy up there in the land of the North. Hope you're well, my friend. We've got RR in the house, Vic McLausick, All Nighter Hider. <laughs> good to see him. Christopher Kirwan, Greg Austin. Holy, oh, okay, I gotta, I'll stay away from that one. <laughs> Steven Tiralongo, Don Meg1986, Hypnotic Triangle Mason, Wayne Smith, Spicy Ginger, 601CNY. Who else we got? I'm waiting for the next one, waiting for the next one. I've said all these. Oh, oh Carlos Garcia, Bucket Clinger. <laughs> All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your evening. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. See you in the next video. Thank you for listening to The Rebel Capitalist Show. For more content like this, check out The Rebel Capitalist blog at georgegammon.com or go to The George Gammon YouTube channel.